welcome to the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, brought to you by Amoria Bond. In each episode, Amoria Bond will interview a prominent leader from across their specialist STEM sectors to discuss their personal experiences of progression and share invaluable insights and inspiring anecdotes of what progression means to them. This is Progressing Lives Everywhere. Hi, it's Andy Barrow here. I'm uh, one of the sales directors at Amoria Bond. I've been working within the recruitment and consultancy sector for over a decade myself now. So progression is something very close to my heart. And on today's progression podcast, I have the pleasure of chatting to someone that I cannot speak highly enough when it comes to progression and coaching and and certainly uh, helping me and many others. So Today's Amoria Bond podcast guest is David Warner. David's got over 25 to 30 years in a variety of industries across the IT sector, before that in teaching, before more recently embarking on a major career change towards coaching and and occupational psychology. And around about seven years ago now, or for the last seven years, David's been working in the coaching space using the chimp management model, specializing, working closely with both individuals and teams, really to try and help them get the best out of their thought processes, how they behave, their confidence, you know, really helping them improve mindset and communication amongst other things. But it can really make a lasting change in their success, their happiness, ultimately their progression. And obviously over that career period, he's worked across a variety of vast organizational experience from QA and manufacturing to software development, to web design, to, to manufacturing and finance. So Not only is David bringing a wealth of coaching knowledge, but he also can apply it quite practically from the other side as well. So hopefully um, we can get some real uh, insights and have a really good discussion. You know, David, I know you've worked with a variety of individuals from both Olympians, Paralympians, professional footballers as well, as well as more recently, the Great British uh, wheelchair rugby team to some good success. So it's really great to have you with us. So thank you. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for the uh, introduction. Hopefully, I, I covered everything there. I really like to start with what progression means to the individual we're talking to. So, when you say that word, what kind of image does it conjure for you in your mind? For me, Andy, I suppose I've learned over the years. You know, I've had quite a long career working, and over the years, it, it's about following what I enjoy, following my energy. I think I've spent, you know, quite a lot part of my career doing things because I felt I needed to do them. And as I've got older and, I don't know, maybe wiser, I've realized that actually, why not do things that I enjoy? What's stopping me doing things that I enjoy? And so doing things that give me energy, things that give me enjoyment and a sense of satisfaction. And I I guess a sense of meaning, get a bit deep there about sort of... That's the big part. Yeah, having a meaningful existence, making meaning of life is a big part of it as well. So yeah, that, that's sort of what guides me. Yeah, it's a good point. I think in the context of progression as well, whenever there's meaning in whatever it is you're doing as well, whether it is something career-wise or a hobby or a passion, then then you connect to it, right? And then that progression will occur a little bit more naturally as well. I think, you know, they go hand in hand, right? If you're not finding the meaning in it or you're not enjoying it, then you're, you're less likely to, to succeed And it's a bit of a vicious circle both ways. I think as human beings, we like to have a sense of purpose. It's important to us. That purpose can be a a very big purpose for some people. It can be a more immediate purpose for, for other people. But having purpose in 
our day-to-day activities and in our lives can be very helpful and, and mentally healthy, I would say. Yeah, for sure. And, and obviously, even more so than ever in these times as well. For yourself, you've, you've touched on a few things there, purpose, meaning, progression, enjoyment, satisfaction. Is there a story or is there a, an idea or a person or, or something that inspires you around that area, something that you find inspirational in that piece then around progression that, that gives you that, that meaning, as it were, to get better, improve and grow? I think that there's no one specific person. I mean, I've had lots of, uh, I've met lots of amazing people in my life and had lots of influences, but something that really sticks out that I guess has guided me throughout adult working life. I started off as a teacher, as a maths teacher in a secondary school in in South London. And one of the other teachers there, a teacher had been there a few years. I remember he said to me once, he said that he liked to completely change careers every few years. I think he said every seven years, almost reinvent himself. So he was in that seven year period or whatever period it was, was his teaching period. And then he was going to go off and do something different when that period ended. And it just struck me at the time as what an interesting philosophy towards working life that is. And I suppose it stuck with me. It's something I've maybe consciously, maybe unconsciously adopted throughout my career. So I actually wasn't a teacher for seven years. I was only a teacher for a couple of years, but (laughs) I then, (laughs) yeah, it was a difficult uh, profession and it still is, of course, full admiration to everybody that uh, is in teaching. And, you know, I then went into IT and became a computer programmer, did that interestingly for about seven years and then moved on into another role where I was software testing. So it's still in IT, but it was a completely different role and then went into management and did that for several years, then went back to software testing, but in the automated software testing space and, you know, developed a new career as an automated software tester. So, you know, doing automated testing on websites and so on. And eventually became a freelancer and then after a while decided that I wanted a complete career change and went back to university and studied psychology and ended up in coaching, which I, you know, I absolutely love doing. There's a thread though still there, you know, from teaching to coaching, there's a thread from maths to programming to psychology. There's a logic, there's an analytical element. There's a, a connection still, as you say, wide varieties, but there's still a thread of your interest, you know, sparks that passion sort of thing. I think I've always been interested in, I suppose, two things, science, but also how the human mind works. And you could argue they're quite closely related with the neuroscience of the brain. So, yeah, I think even in my career in IT, I was always interested in how we were doing things, why we were doing things, how the team would respond to certain situations and also helping new members of staff and training people. It's always been something i suppose you're right there's been a thread there throughout the, my career yeah yeah i think i think there's two angles isn't there there's two sides of the same coin that teacher versus coach but there's there's very much a thread yeah tell me if i'm wrong here would it be fair to say if, you know for the audience that are listening to summarize a little bit as a takeaway it's fair to say that although some people don't like it maybe or some people are scared of it adaptability or change or being willing to try something that is going to aid your development, your growth, your progression. You know, it's a start point. Like you said, you know, you've gone through those different those different changes, but it's helped you develop and get to this part now. And actually, they're all kind of connecting what you currently do. Yeah, I think when we look at human beings, we're sort of a bit programmed towards keeping things the same because that feels safe. If, if we've got constancy, if that's a word, in our lives, 
if we know things are going to be the same and not change too much, we feel safe and secure. So we tend to try to protect what we have. And I guess that can create a little bit of rigidity in our thinking. So being more curious, looking for opportunities, uh, having, I suppose, having that kind of a mindset of curiosity and looking for opportunities keeps a more open mind towards possibilities. And change can be scary, but it can also be very exciting. So to embrace change and really understand and accept that it's not going to kill us. It's, it's going to, it might be uncomfortable at times, but it, it can also open doors and lead to new areas that we maybe never thought were possible for us. I mean, there's, there's certainly no way, you know, 15 years ago, I thought I would be coaching Olympians but, and Paralympians, but here I am doing it. So how did that happen? Exactly. Well, you, you kind of segue quite nicely, really, to when you talk about that curiosity and the mindset. I think you've even shared the phrase before or talked about the, that, the childlike mind, you know, looking at things with fresh eyes and such like. You kind of lend itself quite nicely to actually talking about the model that we mentioned at the start there, the chimp model briefly. For those that may be unfamiliar, you could maybe give us a little bit of a simple terms, you know, where it derives from, how it works, any notable examples. Yeah. So the model that I use in my work is a model that helps us understand the the workings of the human mind. So the human mind is like a machine and it follows rules. And once we start to understand those rules, it becomes a lot easier for us to manage ourselves and to understand other people in the world around us. And that particular model that I use is called the Chimp Model from the book, The Chimp Paradox by Professor Steve Peters, which is a really interesting model that helps us to understand the human mind using a very simple metaphor, but it's also a very deep metaphor. And that metaphor is around looking at the mind in terms of three components. So we have this emotional thinking brain within us, which is really trying to keep us safe and to ensure that the next generation of the species occurs and carries on. And it's, it's an independent thinking part of us. So it's constantly making decisions that we're not always aware of. So it might decide to, uh, I don't know, have that extra donut or it might decide to have an argument when, when we look back and we think, why did I have that argument or why did I have that extra donut? Well, there's, there's a part of your mind that's dis making these decisions for you that we're not, that, as I say, you're not always aware of. It's doing them in what it thinks are, are your best interests. But that part of the mind doesn't always really understand whether those things really are in your best interest. It's just impulsively and instinctively reacting. And that's where we often get something called the fight, flight, freeze response, where when we see a real threat or danger, we'll go into a, a response where we either want to you know, escape and run away or hide or, or fight, fight our corner. And again, we might not always be consciously aware that we're doing that and we might regret it or wonder about it later. But that's a survival response. And in modern society, we don't have many physical threats to our existence, but we see lots of psychological threats and that response kicks in. Not always real, I guess, those psychological threats as well. Sometimes we, we put them there, I guess. They're perceived, yes. They're perceived psychological threats. Now, that's the chimp part of our brain. And then we've got what the model calls the human part of the brain, which is the, the logical, rational, facts-driven, evidence-driven part of the brain, where we're weighing things up. We're making considered decisions. 
it's very good at problem solving, whereas the chimp is very good at sitting with problems and living with problems and talking about problems. The human part of our brain can solve problems. But because the chimp part of our brain is so powerful, because it's there for our survival, it needs to be powerful, it often overrides the human logic. So this is often why we might do something and then later on think, well, why did I do that? Why didn't I just do this? Well, it's because you weren't really in charge. The chimp took over and then the human part of the brain takes time to catch up. You can't, I can't explain why I did it. I just don't know. I just don't know. That would be the chimp probably. Yeah, we hear, you know, we hear that a lot in ourselves and in other people. They make impulsive decisions that aren't always the best ones for them or the most helpful ones for them, let's say. And I described this as a machine before, and it's really important to understand that we all have a reference system, which uh, in the model we call the computer. Now, the reference system, the computer, is where all of our memories, everything we learn, our beliefs, our expectations, our facts and knowledge are stored. And the chimp part of our brain always looks into this computer before making a decision. So, and the computer tells it what to do. If, if the computer doesn't know what to do, the chimp will um, have to make a, a random decision. If the computer knows what to do, it will tell the chimp. And what we can start to see is, is really our past experience and how we're programmed really influence our behaviors. Because as the chimp asks the computer what to do, if the computer provides something helpful, we're likely to engage in a helpful behavior. And if the computer provides something unhelpful, we're likely to engage in an unhelpful behavior. So a, a lot of my work is in helping people understand what their past experiences are and how they shaped them and how we can change anything that appears to be unhelpful. So um, it's a very simple model, but equally highly complex as well, I guess, because if, you if you're thinking in terms of being on autopilot or the chimp just reacts sometimes, very reactive, or the machine, if you put it, the reference is wrong, then we could get it wrong in an instant and not even know. But as, as, as simply put, you're saying, yeah, it's chimp, human, computer, and there's a bit of a battle between them at times, or all the time even. It can feel like a battle, yes. And what I'm, I guess what my work is about, helping people unpick that and realizing that it doesn't have to be a battle, that when you can get that emotional part of your brain working in tandem, that logical part of the brain, you actually become very powerful. And what I mean by that is you can achieve almost anything because the two parts of your mind are, are aligned and working together. Now, that's you know not always easy to get to, but I think one thing to really emphasize, this is about skill development, psychological skill development. So it's like any skill. It needs practice and it can be learned. I don't do coaching that transforms or rarely, very rarely, will I say anything that transforms somebody in that instant, but it's about building insight into how the individual's mind works and then knowing what to do with that insight. So developing skills. So the first skill is insight. And then the skills after that are, okay, well, how do I manage my mind to get the best out of it, to optimize its, its performance? And that is a skill. And it's a skill that can be learned with practice. And, you know, the clients that have the best, the greatest success with me are the ones that are prepared to put the effort into developing those psychological skills. So almost twofold on multiple angles where they could benefit. You know, you, as you said, you train the mind, you train that skill, you develop that. And that obviously in turn will help unlock other areas or age your development in another area or in that facet of your career or that relationship with that individual. So it's almost a chain reaction. 
Yeah, of course. Once you've developed skills, you can put them to good use. You, you understand what you're trying to achieve and how to achieve it. And you can start putting the skills to good use. Now, it's not always easy because the chimp part of your mind is always there and always jumping in with its own suggestions. But that's part of the skill is to recognize that, that actually rather than just going with my emotional thinking all the time, it's understanding that actually that part of my mind is just offering suggestions to me and I've actually got choices. And once we understand that we have choices for how we think and behave, we can then start making choices that are more helpful to us. Again, I'm making it sound easy. It's not. But once we realize these principles, we can then start practicing them. Yeah. Are there no, any notable examples you would share with the, with the listeners about where this has worked well? You know, one that comes to mind, uh, there's, there's lots of examples, lots of examples. I, I work with lots of people from all, all walks of life. One that comes to mind in a sort of elite sporting sense is a, an Olympic sailor who was, when I started working with him and he'd read the book and he liked the model, he wanted to improve his performance and when I spoke to him, it was very clear to me that all of his, I'd say the vast majority of his decisions, his sailing decisions in the boat on the water were emotionally led. So he was making decisions based on how he felt. Now, sometimes our gut reaction, that feeling can be very helpful to us. But sometimes his feelings were, let's say, not that helpful to him because he had a belief in his computer that, he needed to do things differently to all the other sailors. So he was making almost contradictory decisions a lot of the time. And a lot of the time they weren't working out for him. Once we started to employ a more logical process of sticking to the facts about how do you win races? How do you win regattas? What do you actually need to do? His performance is transformed, I was going to say overnight. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but over a period of a few months, he transformed from, you know, one of the sailors in the pack to being a world leading sailor. So it was interesting to just watch the application of the model and how that helped him to make much, much better decisions. And that led to a much, much better performance. Isn't it interesting you say it, the way you said that is story new to me as well, that the phrases you use there is very simplistic in the sense of how anybody when we do something well, because we don't always apply it in the right way, but when we do something well, it's having a system, being consistent with it and trusting that system. And obviously for him, as you said, the first part, whether it's, it's using the model, but thereafter that is using facts and knowledge to help him just consistently have better performance. You know, I think it's quite interesting, particularly on the sporting example there, you know, as you think about businesses as well, it's those that do well. When you have that consistent process of how you apply something, it takes some of the thinking out of it. You gave the example there of the sailor. It's, it's new to me, what you shared there, but the language you used was quite simplistic in the sense of uh, facts, system, consistency, these kinds of things. Obviously similar to the model, but also quite telling that when anyone or a business is doing well in something or successful at something, it's normally because they stick to the facts. They have a consistent system and process that works. And, you know, and then it's replicable. It's like a replicable, consistent model of application. First step, you mentioned the mind there. He got that in place. And then he, he just stuck to the facts. What wins races? How do you write a good piece of music? Or how do you make a recipe? There's a system to it. I thought it was quite interesting the way you described that. You know, my work is very individual. I have to work with each individual to help them understand themselves and to build processes that work for them. So... 
whilst the the principles are the same for everybody you know the, the way the rules of the way the mind works is the same for everybody we have to individualize it so that it works for each individual person because everyone's had their own set of unique experiences each person will have their own set of dreams and goals that they want to achieve in their life and you know my role is to, to work with that to work with the individual to develop something that works for them i can only go so far of course i can provide a framework and a structure it's up to the individual what they do with that and where they take that it's a bit like you know if i was a golf coach and somebody wanted to improve their swing and they came to the driving range with me once a once a month and hit some golf balls they might improve their swing a little bit. But if they then said, well, I'm not going to do any practice. I'll just come next month and hope that I've improved. They won't have done because they would have done no practice. And it's the same same with my work. If my clients don't put the sort of stuff we talk about into practice, they probably won't improve. So I do, you know, it is about what the client does as much as what I do. I guess that's the key of coaching, isn't it? Is you're not dictating to the person, you're steering them and giving them, as you say, a model or framework or suggestions. It's down, down to us as an individual or the group. Exactly. When I end a video call with someone, that's the end of my involvement with them for you know maybe several weeks. And it's completely up to them what happens next. I have no influence over that. True. Very true. And, and for yourself, from you using this model, you know, coming across the model and your own journey with it, are there any highlights you, you could share with us as a result from your own perspective? I think when I first came across this idea of a model of the mind, and by the way, there are lots of models out there. The chimp model is just one. You know, if, if that model doesn't resonate with people, find one that does, because these models are very helpful, can be very helpful. When I first came across it, I think probably like most people, I'd, I'd lived a life up to that point of making some good decisions, maybe quite a lot of not so good decisions, a lot of decisions where I wondered, why have I done that? Or I wish I had done that in some cases, what stopped me doing that? And I read the book and I immediately thought, all oh, right, I understand it now. I understand what's going on in my mind. And it helped me make sense of my life up to that point which in itself was helpful. And I think it helps to normalize. It helps to normalize that this is normal. Most people are like this. Everybody's like this. And it also helps to forgive yourself a little bit if you've made decisions that maybe you think, you know, why did I do that? I wish I hadn't done that. Well, it helps you to understand maybe the reasons why you did make a decision that perhaps, you know, in other circumstances you might not have made. So it helps to explain everything up to that point. And then from that point onwards, it was it helped me to start to develop skills to be more like the person I wanted to be, to be more in line with my values and to live a life that I wanted to lead. So I guess it was a pivotal moment, actually, you know, reading about the model, absorbing the information and trying to put it into practice myself. And it helped me, as I said, you know, when I said right at the start, I, I try to do things that I enjoy you can't always do that, of course, because sometimes, you know, life puts things on us that <laughs> aren't particularly pleasant. Even in those situations, we can find a way through it and find a path to things that we enjoy and that give us energy. And almost, you mentioned it before, almost try to maintain that childlike curiosity on life and to keep an open mind. And that's, I think the models helped me to do that and helped me to sort of steer a path through life where I've been able to do lots of interesting and enjoyable things that maybe I wouldn't have done without it. Yeah, 
no, I, I the couple of the, your own story, and obviously I, I'm very aware of the model. And the gentleman you mentioned there, yeah, it can, it can have some real major impacts for sure. I think you, you touched on it there about the enjoyment angle as well. I remember reading once or seeing an interview; it might have been with there. It's quite, I think, it was quite a famous sports person. They were they were very successful, and he was saying that he prefers the practice or the just the just the, the shooting the breeze, just doing it individually rather than doing it for competition sake. But he, he realised that actually within the context of competition, there were still elements where actually he could find enjoyment. Because almost like the rules constructed around competition, he felt they made him inflexible in what he was doing. But he said, actually, if you can learn to love the application and the process, you're still practising parts of things you enjoy in there, you'll still get better. You've got to have the rough to appreciate the smooth almost. Yeah, I think as a philosophy, whether it's you know elite sport or anything else in life, if we think about when we have our greatest moments in our life, the, the, you know, the most enjoyable events in our lives are typically ones where we are in the moment, where we are fully present, fully engaged in what we're doing. There is typically little thought about or worry about what might happen in the future, little worry, stress or anxiety about what might have happened or what has happened in the past. We're fully engaged in that moment. And it is almost a very childlike moment where, as children, we experiment, we explore, we're curious, we're seeking opportunities, and we're just enjoying with a passion for of what we're doing in that moment. Somewhere in adulthood, we lose a lot of that. Somewhere in adulthood, as we go through life, when we're programmed to do this, of course, we start to develop ourselves and develop, if you like, a sense of self-importance. We gather resources, we gather assets around us, because when you, if you think about sort of what's almost primevally driving us, it's to stay safe and to create the next generation of the species. So in order to do that, we're going to self-promote. So we're going to build up our own self-image. We're going to gather resources so that we can feel safe. And when I mean, what I mean by gathering resources, things like, you know, we'll get a job, we'll get a house, we'll get a car, we'll, we'll then, you know, maybe start a family and we're going to protect that family. What I mean by that is, you know, we're going to continue to gather resources and provide for our families so that the next generation of the species can then go on to produce the next generation of the species. If you look at it in a very sort of primeval level, that's sort of what's what's going on. And what that does to us psychologically, or what you could argue that does to us psychologically, is it starts to make us quite protective. We protect what we have. We protect our reputations. And when we start doing that, you could argue that we start to become a bit more rigid in our thinking, a bit more closed-minded, because we're just thinking about how can I protect what I've got? And we've lost that childlike wonder of just being. And it's all about worrying about, oh, what's the consequences of what just happened? Or what might be the consequences of what might happen? I've got to protect everything. And we become almost quite safe in our thinking. When we can re-engage with that childlike wonder of just being in the moment, that's where all the magic happens, right? Because that's where we become free again. We'll have sort of short moments of that in our adult life where we feel that childlike wonder of just being in the moment nothing matters apart from what I'm doing now and there's a joy and a passion to being in that moment and we can explore and seek opportunities and have that wonder in that moment and then we'll come out of it and we'll go back to our normal lives where we where we worry and, and are anxious what I'm trying to say is that that example that you gave of this of the sports individual the athlete who 
was saying, you know, I'm, in practice, I'm loving it, but in competition, it's different. Well, that's because in competition, you could argue they're putting consequences on it or the competition puts consequences on it. So now, so now there's a reputation to, to uphold. There's something to lose. Whereas in training, it's all about exploration and discovery and opportunity. And what, what if we could take that mindset into competition? What if we said there is no self-importance? Put your put your self-importance to one side. It doesn't matter. You know, we always ask that question. I heard this on a podcast the other day. With, what about me? What does it mean to me? What if there is no what about me? Put the what about me to one side and where does that leave you? It leaves you free because there is no consequence anymore. There's no what about me. So, you know, our egos can often get in the way of our performance. And we sometimes let our egos get in the way of our performance. And if we can learn to recognize and manage our egos, we can feel more free because we then have nothing to protect. We get so hung up on protecting what we have. And a lot of it isn't real anyway. A lot of it actually, it's all in our minds. So we spend a lot of time protecting stuff that isn't real. And what's the point of all that? It stops us doing the things that we really want to do and engaging and enjoying in, in, in activities and being the person we want to be. So yeah, there's a bit of philosophy for you. It's, it goes along, as, as you say, from a, whether it's a sporting perspective, an individual perspective, even a business perspective, that childlike mind or that fresh eyes or that, that freedom element, I suppose you, you, it's almost like you go, well, a business has a problem, a company has a problem, a, sport, a sports business, or an individual has a problem of any sort or a, a worry or a, a fear or they're trying to solve something. But if they just kind of come in and go, well, how do we do it? Or that, that childlike let's give this a try, that creativity, or what else could we do? You know, you've seen these moments from these big organizations over the world, the apples of the world, or these sports teams that just try something different, or these coaches that do something different, you know, Pep Guardiola playing with eight, nine midfielders and things like that. These moments of freedom, they often create little light bulbs for, for a person or a group, don't they? So it's, it's, it's something to be said for it. We hold on to beliefs, some of which may be unhelpful to us. And, when we start to notice those beliefs and notice how they might be holding us back and question them, then we start to create opportunity, right? Because we know we may no longer be trapped by our own beliefs. And then we, as I say, we can create opportunity and we can see possibilities. So a lot of my work and a lot of work any individual can do on, on themselves is to, is to question why they believe in something, to question fear. I mean, you mentioned that before. We often, and I think this brings me on to another important and interesting point, we'll often engage with the emotion that we feel. So something makes us angry, we feel angry, right? Uh, something makes us frustrated, we feel frustrated. To what extent do we ever sit down and think about what was behind that anger, what was behind that frustration? To what extent do we really examine that? And if we start to examine that, we'll often see that behind the scenes in our mind, the anger or the frustration, as an example, this is just one example, was perhaps created by an expectation. So we had an expectation that something would happen or that someone else would behave in a certain way, or maybe that I would behave in a certain way or I would achieve a certain thing, and it didn't happen. So there's a gap now between the reality of what actually happened and our expectation of uh, what we think should have happened. And then that, that gap between reality and our expectation is filled with a, an emotional response. And that emotional response is, you know, potentially in the example I've sort of 
discussed, anger or frustration, but it could equally be anxiety, it could be sadness, it could be happiness, it could be any emotion. A chimp hijack. Yeah, we call that a chimp hijack, where your mind is now just deciding that because there's a difference, it's the computer saying, well, this, this, this hasn't worked out how we expected. And so the chimp takes over and says, well, I'm going to produce an emotional, emotional response to that. But if we examine what that emotional response is all about, we can then notice, actually, rather than deal with my symptom, which is my anger, let's deal with the underlying cause, which is my expectation. Now we can look at the expectation and say, well, am I holding an expectation that is reasonable, that is realistic? Does it match reality? And often we can't change reality. So really the only thing left to change is our expectation. And once we start to shift our expectations closer to reality, we then find that we have fewer hijacks and we're able to more logically process what's happening. And this is not about just accept, accepting and rolling over and saying, oh, well, that's that then. It's about engaging with reality and saying, okay, great, this is, this is where we are. This is, this is, again, going back to living in the moment. This is where we are. This is what's happening. Okay, great. What can I do about it? Where are my opportunities? How can we improve things? Rather than spending most of our time stressing or feeling anxious or annoyed or frustrated about what just happened. That's not really helpful. It's not really helpful. Now, sometimes we have to go through a process to release some of that emotion in order to have that logical thought. But that's where we want to get to. We want to get to the underlying cause of the emotion, not engage with the emotion. That's going to put us in a better place and help us achieve more peace of mind in our lives, I would say. So whether you're a coach or a leader or the person experiencing it, that hijack or that emotion, I guess the, the key thing there really is to move forward or to aid that progression, whether it's in the moment or longer term, is being able to, sort of, as you say, understand it and, and where you can apply that, that principle of, look, expectation management, not in an acceptance way, but understanding these are the things that occur or this is the thing that could occur, you know, and, and how do we deal with that? And it, it go, I guess it then goes back into human mode, solution, solving it, ideas, etc. Yes, I think there's a couple of points there. I think once we understand that there's a sort of difference between the symptom, which is the emotional response that we might see in ourselves or other people, and the underlying cause, there's, there's something to work with then. So it's about when we're dealing with ourselves or dealing with other individuals, it's about noticing the emotional responses that are going on, but not, but not responding to those directly. If we respond to somebody else's emotional response, we're likely to give an emotional response ourselves, And then we're just chimp to chimp. We're just two chimps talking. And two chimps talking aren't likely to solve anything. They're likely to ratchet up the responses till it escalates out of hand or till one chimp decides that they want to escape. So we're going to end up in a fight, flight, freeze process again, and that's not helpful. So once we understand that all we're seeing from ourselves and from other people are a series of emotional responses in certain circumstances, then we can start to engage with okay, this is just an emotional response. How can I help the other individual to feel heard and acknowledged? And that's what our chimps often need. They don't often need solutions. They need to feel heard and acknowledged. And once we can recognize, hear and acknowledge somebody else's chimp and they feel recognized, heard and acknowledged, they're then more likely to move to a solution focus. And what we can do with these kinds of skills is to start to engage in that process to say, okay, well, what is driving that emotional response? What is actually the belief underneath this that is actually causing this emotional response? And now 
what can we do about that? So now we start to create opportunity again. Now we're starting to focus on solutions and starting to focus on, okay, well, do we need to manage expectations? And that brings me on to that second point. It, it is about acceptance. It is about reaching acceptance quickly. But as we've both said, acceptance is not about rolling over and just saying, well, that's that. It's about saying that's how things actually are. That is the reality. Now, how can we work with that? That's where we're trying to get with, with acceptance is how do we move forward? Now we accept the reality as it is. What are the opportunities that that gives us for moving forward rather than fighting reality, which is what we tend, we tend to do sometimes. Definitely. As you say, it's almost you, you take a moment, you assess the situation. Maybe you, you're assessing it again. You're okay. What is my plan or what is our plan here? How do we, how do we improve this situation? That type of thing. Yeah, once we get to the planning stage, we're pretty good. We're pretty good at making plans to move forward. But the chimp will often prevent us getting there because it likes to sit with problems and talk about problems. That's what the chimp part of our brain does. It's there to keep us safe. So it's constantly focusing on the problem. And, and it doesn't really think about solutions. It's just telling us there's a problem, there's a problem. And it's our job to listen to that part of our brain and say, OK, right, you're telling me that because I need to do something about it. And that's what the chimp's really saying to you is do something about the problem. I don't know what to do, but you've got to find out. You're the smart one. You can figure out the solution. And we need to listen to our chimp, but not react to it. We need to engage with it, understand it, and then start to develop our own solutions. Are any individuals or businesses listening to this then? Because you touched on that, that sort of difference there of listening to it, not react to the acknowledgement and the plan. What simple practical tips could people look to adopt for trying to manage their chimp or is there some simple coaching steps that individuals or groups could take that you believe would already help them? There's a few things there. Getting to know yourself, getting to know that emotional side of you, getting to know how it reacts and, and you know, paying attention to yourself, paying attention, doing some, maybe some sort of reflection on a daily basis of just thinking about, well, it's interesting. Have a curiosity about yourself. It was interesting how I reacted there. It was interesting. Why did I say that? What, what made me do that? Having that almost, as we talked about before, childlike curiosity into yourself and thinking about why you reacted in certain situations, why you reacted differently in other situations and start to learn what your chimp is like, what your emotional thinking part of your mind is like how it behaves so that's the first step towards insight so trying to gain gather information and gain insight into yourself i would say is a starting point for any individual in terms of practical tips around managing yourself i think sometimes it's worth recognizing that we do get stuck emotionally we do we can get very stuck emotionally and one of the best practical tips I can offer is it's okay to feel like that and it's normal. And in order to be able to engage with a solution-focused approach, to be able to engage with um, solutions rather than problems, we do need to express ourselves. So being able to find a safe space to do that, to speak to someone that you trust, to be able to say, look, I'm just going to tell you how I feel. I just need to get this off my chest. I mean, we have all the phrases in the English language already to do this. And just tell someone how you feel. Just tell someone what's going on with you. Uh, but it needs to be someone that you trust, that you know they're not going to use it against you or hold it against you. They're going to listen. They're going to encourage you to keep talking. They're not going to jump in with solutions because your chimp doesn't want to hear solutions at that point. They're just going to allow your chimp to exercise. We call it exercising the chimp. Just allow your chimp to have its say. And that 
enables that emotional energy to dissipate, to come out. And our human mind actually starts to listen to what our chimp's saying. And as we say it out loud, we all have these experiences where we might say, this is ridiculous, isn't it? What I'm saying is ridiculous because we're starting to listen to our chimp and we're starting to sift through it and realizing that actually a lot of what we're thinking is nonsense, but, but it needs to be said out loud because we're not very good at solving it inside our own heads, particularly when we're emotionally hijacked. So that can be a very good one and sort of finding somebody that you can trust to do that with and that you can be that for, you can be that person for, can be very helpful. I think the other point that I made, a couple of points that I made is try to see or start to understand that when you feel an emotion, it's just like you're being, being made an offer of, do I want to feel like this? And you actually have a choice. Now, sometimes in the moment, it's a very difficult choice to make to say, I don't want to feel like this. But sometimes it can be it can be done. And the more you practice this, again, like any skill, the better you can get at it and say, I'm just being given a choice now. I can feel terrible about this. I can feel upset. I can feel annoyed. But that's a choice that I can make. And I don't have to make that choice. And the more you practice that, the better you can get at it. And then I suppose the third point is the point I made earlier is all our feelings are just symptoms of something underlying. And if you can spend some time thinking about well, what is the underlying cause, that's the place to spend your time and effort. Because once you start to deal with the underlying cause, then it may well be that those feelings that you have, you won't experience as much because the underlying cause that's generating those feelings has been um, has been dealt with. Now, often that requires a bit of specialist work. You know, that might be require a bit of coaching or having someone as a sounding board, but often you can do it yourself as well. So that, those are, I guess those are some practical things that I could, I could suggest. Thank you. No, and I think, I think real uh, quick ones to adopt as well, you know, certainly daily reflection or weekly reflection. I think how often do we all just go from reaction to reaction? situation to situation or you know you you know sometimes people drive to work don't they and they're on autopilot so you could quite easily be on autopilot in the conversation so reflecting on why you do certain things then i guess that's a, a real big start point as you say and understanding why you feel a certain way real great ones thank you and for you then the future then what does the future look like in terms of coaching or how this model can really help people progress as well tell us a little bit more what the future holds in terms of the future, I suppose in my profession as coaching world, I think there's a, some interesting shifts happening. I think as we're learning more and more, as science is learning more and more about how the human brain works. I mean, the human brain is an incredibly complex organ in our body, and we don't fully understand, science doesn't fully understand all the ins and outs of how the mind works, but with modern techniques, we're learning more and more as every day passes. I think a neuroscientific approach to coaching is going to be more and more of a big shift. We're going to see our mind and understand our mind much as we understand and see our physical body. So, you know, we have a good understanding of how the physical body works. And I think as time moves forward, even in my lifetime, we're going to have a really good understanding of, of how the human mind works and how to get the best out of it. I mean, we've already made great strides over the last 15 to 20 years, and I think that's going to continue and probably even accelerate. So that's exciting. Another area is um, group dynamics and social psychology. So understanding not just the psychology of the individual, but also the psychology of the group. So how do groups interact and behave 
And that's not an area of expertise of mine, but I work with and have colleagues in this kind of field and find this a really fascinating area. And it just gives us another lens through which to look at human interactions. So we can look at, you know, human interactions through the individual lens and through the lens of the chimp model, but also looking at it through a social lens can provide further insights. And then I guess the third area, which I think we've seen a huge emergence of over the last six months, for obvious reasons, is around self-care. You know, we talk about uh, mental health a lot anyway, but uh, that sort of idea of psychological health and fitness and psychological fitness and self-care is going to be something that uh, I think is just going to grow. And rightly so, right? I think it's important that we as individuals understand how to get the best out of ourselves and how to look after ourselves and organizations that we belong to put that at the top of their agenda as well because the people are the most important asset that any organization has and to look after those individuals and make sure those individuals have good mental health and good psychological care is really important for for everybody's sakes that's that's the world we want to live in where everybody's living a a good physically and psychologically healthy life and are able to feel that they have opportunities to to get to wherever they wherever they want to in life and become whatever they want and that that's what we're looking for and that's a a great sort of point to finish on really as you say whether it's the individual taking control of it companies being aware of it those around us that idea of if you understand yourself more you analyze yourself more you actually train yourself more and as you say, organizations with their people and they're thinking about that, then that can only help everyone both personally, professionally, physically, mentally, the whole works really. It's a real key joined up idea that I think many people compartmentalize sometimes. I think, yeah, it's, it's a full circle, isn't it? We're, we're trying to really adopt that full circle. So really great point to finish on, David. If people want to learn more about you or the model, then they can get in touch with Amoria Bond or, or ourselves, right? And then we can, we can do the rest to, to get them in touch with you. Yeah, absolutely. And there's the uh, Chimp Paradox book, if people want to read more about this particular model. And as I said before, there's plenty of other models out there as well. If this model doesn't chime with you, find one that does. These models can be very helpful in helping you get the best out of yourself. And that and that's what that's what we all want. Brilliant. Thanks, David. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Progressing Lives Everywhere. Brought to you by Moria Bond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the podcast. For more information on Amoria Bond specialist services and to access the podcast show notes, head over to amoriabond.com. Join us next time as we continue to progress lives everywhere.